My name is Lori, and I heard the good news when I was 13 and became a Christian. I tried to explain my faith to my dad. He was raised Catholic, but never attended church during my childhood. He always refused any discussion about God, Jesus, or salvation. I even tried to give him a Bible as a gift for Christmas one year, but he never read it. In fact, I never saw my dad read a Bible at all, and he didn't attend church. The years passed, and when my dad was in his 70s, he suffered multiple strokes that left him physically and verbally limited. I knew he could pass away at any time, and I wanted to try once more to share the good news before it was too late. During our Thanksgiving visit at my parents' house, I had my opportunity. Dad and I sat at the kitchen table, and my heart was pounding. I knew the time was right, and I asked him if I could talk to him about God, and miraculously, for the first time ever, he said yes. I opened the Bible I had brought and went through the marked verses. I started with Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I proceeded with the next seven verses, walking my dad through the path to salvation. I then asked my dad if he was ready to invite Jesus into his heart and life, and he said yes. It was a beautiful, quiet, and joyful moment that I'd prayed for for many years. I wasn't sure what to do next, so I began to read the Bible to my dad out loud. To my surprise, he started quoting with me the verses I was reading from John. I was amazed. Dad, how do you know these verses? He just looked at me and gave a little laugh. My dad passed away a year and a half later. I thank God for the gift of that evening. I am comforted being assured of Dad's decision to surrender his life to Christ, and I am overcome with emotion when I remember that night and realize how miraculous it was in every way. Miraculous that Dad said yes to talking about God. Miraculous that Dad let me share what the Bible said about salvation. Miraculous that Dad accepted Christ as his Savior, and miraculous that my Dad quoted Scripture. To this day, that miraculous night continues to be an overwhelming blessing in my life. Father, thank you so much for a great story of what you're able to do in a person's life through the good news that is Jesus Christ. As we begin this series, we ask that you would uh, bless us and, and guide us through it and draw us nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year is 57 A.D., and I have to imagine that Paul was probably pacing a floor somewhere in Corinth as he prepared to dictate a letter to a church in Rome, a church that he had never visited, a church that he didn't plant. In fact, we know very little about how that church came to be in Rome. But it was there, and you could hear about their faith throughout the empire. People were talking about the Christians who were in Rome. And Paul, in the most desperate way, wanted to know how he could encourage them, how he could strengthen them in their faith. I mean, who is there to nurture them, to help them grow, to help protect them against heresy and other kinds of issues that would oftentimes come up in the early church? He also wanted to invite them into partnership with him. Paul had a dream that maybe someday he would go beyond Rome itself after he had visited there, even to Spain with the gospel, because God had called him to proclaim the good news to the entire Gentile world. 
And so I imagine Paul kind of pacing back and forth, trying to figure out how he's going to do this. That if he were there face to face, what is it he would say to them? And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit worked in his mind and in his heart. And Paul penned a letter. We call it the book of Romans. And he wrote it to these Christians in Rome. And it has truly become one of the most significant letters in the New Testament. Someone has said, if you didn't have any of the other books of the Bible, but you had the letter called Romans, you would have enough to know what it means to be a Christian and how to live out the Christian life. So it's a significant, significant letter that has transformed and changed lives throughout the centuries. Augustine, for one. Martin Luther, for another. And the list goes on of the people's lives who've been transformed by this letter. It shows us how to live the Christian faith. But unfortunately, some people have kind of given the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans a bad rap. What I mean by that is they've made it sound like it's this complicated letter that Paul wrote that you have to have a theological degree to understand. And I guess sometimes we can complicate the scriptures and make them more difficult than they have to be. And I won't argue. There are a few things in there that are hard to understand, and we'll discuss them. But generally speaking, it's not meant to be a tough letter. It was written to simple people like me and maybe like you. Actually, if you really want to appreciate Romans, you've got to understand that it's really a story. It's Paul's story of what the good news did in his life. And more importantly, it's the story of Jesus, who is the good news. And so we're going to call it the God is story, and we need to jump in. So grab your Bibles or your iPads, your iPods, whatever you happen to be using. If you've got the scriptures tattooed on your arm, roll your sleeve up, all right? And we're going to look at this book letter called Romans. And we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to begin just the way it starts. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, this letter is from Paul. Now, boy, that already is pregnant with meaning. Who was Paul? Well, we oftentimes think about Paul as the great apostle. Churches are named after him. Cathedrals are named after him. But, you know, Paul began his life as a notorious criminal. You say, what do you mean a notorious criminal? Well, he hated Christians. He hated them so much that he was on his way to Damascus to arrest them and to see them jailed and put to death. That's pretty violent. I call that pretty criminal. He was a man who who was into the law, living by the law, keeping the law, a man who was proud of his heritage, and and he was a proud Pharisee. But his life, his life changed when the resurrected Jesus ambushed him on the way to Damascus. And Paul went from this proud Pharisee to what he calls himself here, a slave of Christ Jesus. Jesus. This letter is from Paul, a slave. Not the proud Pharisee anymore, but the lowly slave. In Paul's day, slaves had it so 
difficult, had it so hard. You were on the, you're the lowest rung of society. Somebody owned you. You didn't even have your own rights. Nobody wanted to be a slave. Nobody wants to be a slave today. You don't go to college to get a major in slavery. Slavery has been, you know, one of the, the shadows, dark shadows of this nation, the sin of slavery. So why would Paul call himself a slave? Because he had sold out to Jesus Christ. Because he had no problem surrendering his life to Christ and letting Christ own him, letting God own his life. And you know what? I think, I think that's a great thing. I, too, want to say that I am Dale and I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't mind. I'm glad that he's my master. I want to be sold out to him. You know, I'd rather be Jesus' slave because there's far more freedom in being the slave of Christ than there is the slave of sin and the slave of self. Wouldn't you agree? Do you consider yourself a slave of Christ? Actually, some slaves in the Roman Empire did have it pretty good Those were the slaves who served the emperor or a governor or someone in power. He gave them status. I cannot think of greater status than to be a child of God, to be a servant and a slave of Christ. You know, we live in a world where everybody's looking for status, right? Facebook, how many people like you? How many friends do you have? How many likes do you have? That was funny. I was overseas, obviously, the last uh, 10 days, and I've been blogging. Hopefully, you've had a chance at 95th to hear it Hopson to check out the blog. How many of you have? Oh, good. All nine of you. And uh, you can go on there and catch up, all right? They're, they're there. Just go through our website, all right? But I've been blogging on there, and I, I happened to go on and, and check my, my, my daughter uh, webpage on Facebook, and I saw that she put on there that I was one of her likes. And it made me happy. I hadn't noticed that before. My daughter likes me. <laughs> you know what's more important? is that God likes you. God likes you. You know, people, they say people have to love you, but they don't have to like you. You know what I'm talking about? All right? You know some people like that, right? You love them, but you don't really like them. Okay? Well... This is what's cool about God. He loves you and he likes you. So, you know, it's a good thing to be his slave. And Paul says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. He says, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Chosen by God to be an apostle. Now, Paul's unique in one sense, but not in another Here's the sense in which he's not unique. All of us are chosen. Paul was chosen, but you and I, we are chosen too. God has chosen us to be his children. I want to take you to a passage found over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 8. Listen to what it says. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. 
God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So he praised God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. I mean, that passage is so rich that if you were going to get a tattoo, you ought to get that tattoo. uh, uh, You ought to get that tattooed on your body. But there's probably too many letters, too expensive and too painful. But it's worth memorizing. Those are precious words, aren't they? God loved you. God showered his kindness on you. God wanted you. It was his pleasure to send his son who for the pleasure of saving you died for the joy of the cross. Says in Hebrews died for you and me so we could be his own. Isn't that good stuff? It's exciting. It's all about you. And I know this life's a little bit miserable and this life's not real easy at times, but this life will be over soon. And all we have to look forward to, you know, let's not live on this plane. Let's live on this plane, but let's live with our minds focused on who Christ is. Great news. Now, here's the sense, though, in which Paul is a little different, unique from us. He says he was chosen by God to be an apostle, an apostle sent by God to preach the good news. Now, When we think about an apostle, there are two ways to look at it. One is to think about an apostle with capital A, okay? Paul, Peter, others, they were all capital A apostles because in the New Testament, the definition of an apostle was one who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and had been actually sent on behalf of Christ to do something, okay? But I also believe there are small letter A apostles, and that's you and me. If we take apostle in its strictest sense, the way it was used in the Greek and what it means, it is a sent one, one who is sent on behalf of another to carry out some business for that person in the name and the authority of that person. When I was a young boy, uh, my mom didn't drive, and my father worked uh, away from home most of the time. And so every once in a while, she'd have to deposit a check in, uh, at the bank in, in, the, in town. And so she would get the check ready and so much for deposit, so much for withdrawal. And she'd put it in an envelope and she'd hand it to me. And she'd say, get on your bike and go down to the bank and deposit this. Make sure they give you the cash back and come straight home with it. Man, I took that seriously. That was a big deal. Because sometimes there was like a million dollars to deposit. Just kidding, all right? But, uh, you know, there'd be a check in there to deposit. And I'd get on my bike and I'd ride into town. I wouldn't look left or right except to make sure traffic wasn't coming. And I'd go to that bank in St. Charles and I'd deposit that bank. And I'd stand there and wait for them to count it back. And I'd count it to make sure it was right. Put it back in the envelope. Hit it. Because you never know who's watching. All right, and I'd pedal back home and I'd hand it over to my mom. Deed and responsibility was finished and done. I was being an apostle. I was taking something. I was, my mother was commissioning me. She was sending me to do business in her name at the bank, trusting me to do it right and bring back what 
what I would be accountable for. You and I have been entrusted by God with the gospel to take it and to spread it here, near, and far. You don't have to be a full-time pastor or missionary. You don't have to go overseas. Wherever you work, wherever you live, in your family, you've been entrusted to bring that gospel, to bring that good news. This past uh, 10 days, I happened to go and visit some of our our partners. I taught in Nepal. I taught over 50 uh, different pastors and Christian leaders, and within the 50 were 10 of the church planners that our church supports in our attempt to plant 50 churches in the next five years. And you'll see a picture of them up here. These are 10 of them that attended the workshop there. And uh, what a ragamuffin-looking group, huh? But I'm telling you what, there's a lot of power in that group, all right? In that group already, there are about 50 converts, brand-new converts to Christ, in an area that is mostly Buddhist and primarily Hindu. You want to talk about having a hard road to go to make followers for Jesus Christ. Two of those pastors have already planted daughter churches out of their church plant. Now last year when I went and taught, one of the pastors who is not in this picture, but is, is about in his 20s, went out to plant a church And he died of jaundice. And here's that brand new little church and now no pastor. Who is going to lead the church? Well, a 28-year-old woman with an 11-month-old son stood up to the plate and said, I will lead this church. And you see her picture now up on the screen as we prayed over her and commissioned her to go. That little church has already seen over a dozen converts to Christ. And I just, I just look at these people and I see the New Testament. I look at these people and I see the apostles of the past because God is doing miraculous and powerful things to them. Do you know that most people who are coming to faith right now in Hindu uh, uh, lands like Nepal are coming to faith by miraculous healings. And these folks that you're seeing up here, and a lot of them are pretty young, they're going out into the villages, they're preaching the gospel, they're praying over people, people are being healed, and that's how people are turning their lives and their families then over to Christ because they see that the God of the Christians actually can do something versus the millions of gods the Hindus worship and nothing happens. In fact, what happens to them is many of them become possessed by demons as a result of that. And I'll tell you a story about that in just a few minutes. But you and I have been called to go out and be apostles. Now, Paul says that the letters from him, he's a slave of Christ, chosen by God to be an apostle, and sent out to preach the good news. And the question is, what is the good news? Actually, it's a wrong question. The good news isn't about what. The good news is about who. The good news is all about a person. Look what he says, verse 2. God promised this good news long ago to the prophets, like Isaiah in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, the good news is about his son. 
Paul says, in his earthly life, he was born into the King David's family line, just as it had been promised and prophesied. Now think about this for a moment. In Jesus' earthly life, we see him do miracles and powerful things, but there's a, there's a sense of, of his weakness in his earthly life. Hunger and thirst and suffering that he went through. And there was a sense of speculation. Was he really? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really good news? Or just another, you know, flamboyant character coming through history saying they'll save the world and they all go down in flames. Well, listen to what Paul says next. Verse 4. And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says it's the resurrection that proves he was more than just a prophet, more than just a good man. And Paul, Paul gets pretty excited about this. I mean, very triumphant, just like we heard as we opened our service up, as, uh, as we heard and, and listened to God is in all the aspects, all the attributes of God. Listen to Paul. He says, and he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul had experienced the power of who Jesus Christ is because when he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, it transformed Paul's life. It transformed Paul's life. Has he transformed your life? You know what's really interesting when you look at the New Testament? You know, most of the disciples, most of the apostles experienced Jesus in his earthly life. They struggled with belief. Then they experienced him in his resurrection and they believed. Paul, he does it backwards. He experiences Jesus in his resurrection, then looks back at the life of Jesus and sees and understands the sufferings of Christ and how they make sense as a result of that resurrection from the dead. Victory over the cross, over death, over sin for you and for me. Paul goes on in verse 5, he says, Through Christ God has given us the privilege and the authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere, Gentiles everywhere, what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him bringing glory to his name. Now, I want to suggest to you that there is a mission statement found there, Paul's mission statement, and I think our mission statement as well. We'll just kind of sketch it out very briefly, very easy right here. Paul, or we could say it could be you, but we'll say Paul. Paul says that he preaches, all right, this good news, That doesn't mean you have to go out and preach, but that's what he did. But he went out and told the good news, which is who? Help me out, both campuses. Which is Jesus, all right? So you got the good news, which is Jesus, for the purpose that people will what? Three things. So that people will what? Believe. Don't just whisper it. Obey, okay? Believe. Obey, and what's the third thing? 
and glorify God. That's kind of like Paul's mission statement. I exist to tell people the good news who is Jesus Christ so they'll believe, obey, and glorify God. You know, that's your mission statement and my mission statement too. We live, we exist. God left us here on this earth. I told the Nepalese Christians just a couple of days ago who lived in unbelievable squalor in some places, just so hard and so difficult, who suffer for the faith. And we were talking about suffering. I said, look, God has left you in this place for a reason because you are the hope of Nepal. And your aim and my aim is to make sure that we make known the good news about Jesus Christ so that people will believe, obey, and glorify him till he calls us home. That's what, that's what your job is, my job is, no matter what your profession is. Our aim, in wherever we are, in our family, in our job, at school, our aim is to live our lives in such a way that it compels people to believe that Jesus is the good news, to obey what he says, because when we obey God, it brings him glory. Isn't that exciting? All right, I'm glad about 20 of you are excited. I hope at 95th there were more voices, all right? We're excited about this, what God is doing. Now, from verses 6 on down to, oh, about verse 15, Paul talks about how eager he is someday to come and visit them. He wants to see them someday. He tells them about how happy he is to hear about how their, their faith is, is strong. He can't wait to come and share a spiritual gift with them. I think that means knowledge and wisdom uh, with them so that they'll understand the word of God, so that they'll stay strong in their faith, so they won't be interrupted and won't be discouraged. He can't wait to do that. He can't wait to get there. He is so excited to preach the gospel and the good news that when we come to verse 16, listen to what he says. He says, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. Now, to understand what Paul means when he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news, you got to take it the opposite of shame. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I'm proud of this good news. I'm proud of Jesus. But then you got to ask yourself, how can you be proud of something that keeps getting you in trouble? Because that's what kept happening to Paul. He was jailed for the good news. He was beaten for the good news. He stoned for the good news. Imprisoned for the good news. His head, according to tradition, will be cut off by Nero because of his commitment to the good news. How can Paul not be, you know, how can Paul be proud of the good news? Because Paul has experienced the power of the good news in changing his life and the lives of so many other people. How about you? Are you proud of the good news? Are you proud of Christ? Because you've experienced a change in your life as a result of it, and because you see it working, changing other people's lives. Paul says it is the power, the Greek word is dunamis, from which we get what? Dynamite. It is the dynamite of God. It blasts through sin and death, and it sets people free, saving everyone who believes. Saving, that's an important word. Saving, rescuing. When Paul was living, 
the Roman world was searching for and talking about salvation. A statesman and philosopher by the name of Seneca spoke these words. He said that all men were looking ad salutem towards salvation. What we needed, he said, was a hand let down to lift us up. And yet they were looking to all the wrong things for salvation, to philosophy, to other kinds of religions, to the gods, to materialism, to the government, to the Caesar. Save us, save us, save us. But things weren't getting better. They were getting worse, kind of like our world today, kind of like our nation today. People want, people are searching for salvation right now. Maybe not in the way that you and I think about it, but they're looking for a hand to reach down and somehow save them. Do you see how embroiled the Middle East is right now? I mean, come on. I hope you took that series in Ezekiel seriously. What's going on right now? What's going on in our own nation right now? What is going on with all the the crime and the shootings and the violence and just all the, the bad news in this world? It's because people are looking everywhere for salvation, but they're not looking to the right person for salvation. And that's why God is good news in a bad news world, don't you think? God is good news in a bad news world. And you and I, we are the conveyors of that good news. So let's not keep it to ourselves. He says, it is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. I love this. We're going to talk more about this in the upcoming weekends. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. We're going to talk more about what this means when Paul says that God has made us right in his sight. We're going to talk about what is saving faith. Honestly, What is saving faith? And it has something to do with Noah and the flood. I'll keep you guessing what that's all about. Noah and the flood? Doesn't even make much sense to me. Oh, I'll give you a little clue to think about. Just to kind of tide you over till we get there. You know, go back and read, go back and read the story of Noah building the ark. I mean, Have you ever noticed the detail that God gives in how that ark was built? But there are two things missing from the ark. That's where we'll talk about faith, okay? All right? But I want to talk right now about the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Because I had an opportunity this past week to experience seeing understanding the power of the gospel. I had an opportunity to go to a place called Bhutan, which is a tiny little kingdom with a king and a parliament. And uh, it's, it's located just east of Nepal and kind of north of, of India. It's just kind of tucked way up in there. Very mountainous. In fact, the ride in was one of the most fun, scary experience I've ever had on a 737 jet. Because we literally had to descend 
between mountains and weave our way through valleys to land in Thimbu, the capital, which has a population of about 100,000 people. You see a picture of it right there. So imagine you've got to come in through all of that and you and you land on that strip there. They have special engines they got from Singapore, uh, some deal with them for the four jets that they have on their airline called Druk Air. Okay, They're special engines so they can climb up out of those mountains when they take off. Amazing experience. But Bhutan is close to Christians. You can be a Christian in Bhutan, but you cannot share your faith. You can worship in your house, but you cannot preach publicly. If you're caught preaching publicly, if you're caught holding a worship service, if you're caught inviting people to come and sharing your faith, you can be jailed. You can be punished for it. And it's very difficult for outsiders to get in. We didn't get our visa till the last day, and it costs $250 a day to be in Bhutan. And so they kind of control how things take place there. There's a lot of Hinduism there because the Nepalese moved in there a long time ago and had that Hindu influence. And you got India to the south as well. But there are a lot of Buddhists in there. And the world's tallest Buddhist, we were told, is there. And I grabbed a shot of him. He's about 180 feet high. And he rests on a mountain that's about 8,000 feet altitude. And I was standing right in front of him. Very mountainous, very cold place. And there is a lot of demonism in Bhutan. There are a lot of people who are into the whole tantric system, into meditation and and all kinds of mystery religion that flows out of Buddhism and a mixture sometimes of Buddhism and Hinduism. And yet here's what's awesome. They try to squash the church, but the church in Bhutan is growing. From house to house to house. Brave, courageous Christians are sharing their faith. Why? Because because they have been so changed by it. They have to share it. Now, we always had to have an official tour guide with us, but we got rid of the tour guide one night. And we're able to meet in a house. It's kind of weird when, I haven't had this experience before. It's kind of weird when you meet in the house and the pastor walks around, closing all the curtains. We met with about a dozen pastors. They all began to share their stories about how the faith is spreading and how it's happening, listen, primarily two ways, by miraculous healings and by the casting out of demons. Now, the primary pastor sat down with me and told me that he came to faith in Christ because his father-in-law, who was a devout Hindu, who had no use for God, was dying, was literally dying. And a Christian came along and the man said, what can you do for me? And the Christian said, all I can do is pray for you. And the Christian prayed for him and he was healed. And as a result, his whole family came to Christ. So he comes. He comes to Thimpu, all right, and he decides he's going to be a pastor and he's going to plant a church. He's, he's looking for a house to rent, and believe it or not, it's pretty expensive in Bhutan. And he finds this house that is available at an incredible price, like a ridiculous small price. Picture the house right here. 
I'd like to keep it up uh, while I talk, if you don't mind. Um, and he wonders, why is this house so cheap? And the owner says to him, it's because the house is possessed by demons. A girl committed suicide here. Several of the people in their building it died mysteriously here. And nobody, including the owner who had it built for himself, nobody wants to live there. In fact, people would drive around it to avoid it. And the pastor said, I'll take it. So the pastor moves in and then realizes what a mistake he had made. He looked at me and he had a witness. And the witness was a missionary from India who's been coming up there to help. That was kind of our way in. Verified this, has been in the house and said, and he said for three months, supernatural forces were at work in this house. He said, I need to tell you, he said, there were noises in the night. We had a drum set. There was nobody else in the house. The drums were being played. Someone was on the microphone. He said it was like people had marbles and were throwing them down the hallways, walking up and down the steps. It was all the stuff in the movies, okay, was going on. And he said, I literally did not sleep for three months. But he said, I walked around that house with the word of God, and I just kept preaching the word of God in this house, proclaiming the word of God in this house, until finally he said, those demons left. And I'm sitting in the house thinking, man, I hope they are gone. <laughs> and then he said this to me. He said, he said in his broken English, he said, I wanted to leave this house with my family. I want, we wanted to leave this house, but I knew if we left this house, then the people would think that our God was weak. So he said, I had no choice. I had to stay in the house. And he said, God is strong. I preached in the basement of that house to about 20, I think there's a picture on the blog, to about 25 believers. A whole bunch of them were out for a wedding and away for a holiday. Otherwise, that house is usually packed with about 40 to 50 brand new believers. And they live every gathering. They live in fear that they'll be caught or arrested. But they can't help themselves. Because God has done something powerful in their life and they've got to make it known to others. Praise God. The good news, the good news is Jesus Christ. And when you experience the good news, you can't keep it to yourself. Can you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this brand new study in this amazing letter called Romans where already, Father, we've been so encouraged, I have, to know that God is the good news. That Jesus saves and makes us right with the eternal God of the universe. That in a world looking for salvation, we are the bearers, the small a apostles of that good news. God, I pray that we would not keep it to ourselves. We who live in luxury compared to my brothers and my sisters in Kathmandu and Pokhara and Timbu. 
who I lift up to you tonight and ask you to bless and protect and empower, oh God. Father, may we join them in making that good news known to our world, our culture, our nation. God is good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.